0: Ah, uh, so we're in Wellington one more time. I'm here with David Anderson. Hello, David. Hello, how's it going? And David Anderson is um, not made of plastic, his head is not square, <laughs> uh, but um, is very well known to us that follow Twitter and things of like this as uh, Expensive Scare. Alrighty, and what's your actual Twitter moniker? At Expensive Care. Okay. And uh, Expensive Scare is a joke that runs with a lot of us from the UK and I think in a couple of places around here in Australia, which is, means expensive intensive care is
1: expensive scare. Um, wh- wh- what did you, where did you decide to give yourself that name on Twitter? Look, I thought of a few things, and I wanted something that, that highlighted the fact that I was involved with intensive care, but that was a bit funny and would be seen as a bit of an in-joke with some people. And also I have a bit of an interest in the, in the higher, more technological aspects of intensive care, like ECMO, but also in the more ethical aspects of intensive care, like, you know, distributive justice and so on. So I thought it was a bit of a, a dig at myself for being interested in high-tech things, but also interested in whether or not we should be using them.
0: Well, that's, that's very, I, mean, I, have, I have very similar conflicts to myself, and I, I, I'm incredibly surprised that I find myself doing anything that's even vaguely intensive care, or even worse, intensive care in airplanes which is makes expensive scare look like, you know, I don't know what, but anyway, um, vaccines, I think. But um, the, I, don't know, I just found myself following the process, and I just, I just followed the stuff that I was interested in, and I found myself in an area which, I, I ethically, I, I do find difficult to justify at times
1: and so on, and, and, but you like ECMO, so I can now look at you and, and feel better about myself. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, it's, it's interesting that we have, this, we have this technology that we can use to almost sustain life indefinitely now. Um, and we're, we're almost, I, I think we're coming back to an age of medicine where we're almost going to have to go back to being more paternalistic because we're going to have more and more of these technologies that we as doctors will have to be making decisions about about who gets them or not and and us as intensivists will often be having to make those decisions because I find working in a very super sub-specialised hospital that the other doctors seem to miss the big picture and that's another aspect of the title of my my website is looking at the big picture in intensive care and, you know, we're we the ones who are having to often make decisions about, about whether or not to use these technologies. And you've got an interest in palliative care. I think you have to have an interest in palliative care if you're involved in intensive care. And in
0: fact, I think perhaps if you don't have an interest in palliative care, you should be kicked out. But, the, you know, we have all these situations where, where we're involved in these end-of-life decisions. And, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to sit and try and learn about this from some fantastic people, Bill Sylvester and characters like that. he needed a little uh, conference now yearly down at the Austin. Um, uh, uh, these are you know problems that, that we come up against regularly and often concepts that we have to explain for the first time to families who are at the really the pointy end mm-hmm. of a process uh, and i do sometimes wonder about you know if it, your ability as a communicator about explaining to these people i mean there's there is a terrible moment of an imbalance of power there whereby if you if you were able to if you wanted to try and push somebody a certain way you know that you're actually capable of doing it if you're a good enough communicator and so on th- there is a moment of 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 just I don't know what we did call it you know there's not doubt in my mind I mean I'm always happy that I'm doing the right thing Mm. but there is an opportunity for that to go wrong.
1: Yeah I I agree I mean I think being a a good communicator is perhaps the most important aspect of being a good intensivist and I agree with you 100% that I I think in in almost all cases intensivists make the right decisions and and help families make the decision I think is a good way of putting it and it just intensely frustrates me that we seem to be the only doctors in the hospital that are able to do that and I, I a post on this recently where, you know, we you know, increasingly the most junior doctor in the department is is, is giving the, the patients or the patients' families a, a bewildering menu of options instead of sitting down with them and, and telling them what our medical opinion is. And I think that's what we should be doing. We should be telling them what our medical opinion is and gently directing them towards what we feel is the right decision. But you're right, there is a huge potential for, for a skilled communicator to manipulate someone, and perhaps that's why paternalism is not the ideal way to go. And like anything, we need to have a mixture of autonomy and paternalism um, and the right balance will probably be different for each patient or each family. Do you find yourself working with the actual palliative care physicians in your hospital, now
0: you're an RPA, um, do they come into the ICU, do you get them involved in cases as well as the
1: ICU guys? So interestingly I'm actually working in palliative care at the moment as a a bit of an elective and also to fulfil some of my medicine requirements and and I'm finding that we are being increasingly invited into the ICU, not not so much because I I think the intensivists need any assistance or direction with palliative care because I think it is an important aspect of, of intensive care, but to make sure that we provide, as palliative care, provide that continuity back to the ward to ensure that the patient receives good palliation on the ward. Having said that, something I will say about working in palliative care is that I do find going into ICU with my palliative care hat on a big reluctance amongst many intensivists to prescribe regular opioids to dying patients. It's always prescribed PRM. And maybe that does work in the ICU where where you've got a brilliant nurse looking after the patient one-on-one giving it. But I still think there's a bit of reluctance on the part of some intensivists that they think that they may be hastening death by prescribing regular opioids, and I can tell you that that's not the case.
0: I must admit, it's not not my practice. I tend to be extremely generous with it to Mm -hmm. the point whereby I'll make sure I'm on with my nurse in terms of infusions, if Mm -hmm. anything is required. And um, and if they're uncomfortable, making it very clear to them that they're uncomfortable turning that up, just come and get me, Mm. write down that they spoke to me, I'll I'll turn it up myself and I'll write down that I've turned it up. So just these these are things that need to be done. Mm. Uh, Of course, getting out to the wards again, that's the interesting thing I find with them. I I might have a a nice, uh, and this applies to people that we're going for, whether, you know, the Weingarty Maximally Aggressive (laughs) Care or Maximally (laughs) Aggressive, you know, Palliative Care or uh, the, um, the end of life care. Because, um... The, the transition out to the ward can cause all sorts of problems. I mean, you'd be aware of the phrase, given that you like expensive scare of ICUitis. Have you heard of that one? Mm. So we have all these patients that go out and they've, they've just been covered in care for yeah. days, maybe weeks and so on and so forth. Yeah. And it's very, very hard for people to cope with then being out in a
1: ward where no one's actually sitting there staring at them all the time. Mm. And what's the palliative care version of that like? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, we, we have patients receiving palliative care now for a very long time. You know, patients are often being involved with palliative care not long after receiving a terminal diagnosis, and and we end up actually almost being their their primary doctors, their primary carers, because in a way, one thing that attracts me to palliative care is that it's very much like delivering intensive care on the wards. We're actually looking after the population of, of critically ill patients who didn't make it to ICU for some reason or another, so we're actually looking after critically ill patients on the ward and using some of the same techniques and skills used in intensive care and trying to devote as much attention as we can to the patients to the extent where it's not uncommon for a patient who's under another team for the palliative care registrar on call to get a phone call in the middle of the night because the nurses know they'll get the most joy from us or because the patient asks for it specifically. And that's of course a really good thing but a really bad thing at the same time Mm -hmm. because
0: we, I mean I think there's an interesting thing happening, there's debates amongst people about what it means to be an intensivist in this new paradigm where there's going to be hospitalists and we'll be taking Mm -hmm. care of patients and I'm finding that what used to be the mainstay of the wards, the Surgical Registrar, the Senior Surgical Registrar, the Medical Registrar, the Senior Medical Registrar, that all seems to have changed Mm -hmm. and now lots of people are coming in and it must be difficult being on the wards being getting a slightly bitty response but I can completely understand why the nurse in charge overnight will contact the person that's actually going to come back to them. I mean, do you have any, I I, I don't know how would you put it? the, uh, how do you see all that happening? I mean, you've done it now from an intensive care point of view and now you're doing the same thing from a palliative care point of view where you'll go because you'll answer the phone or at least you'll give advice you'll be able to tell the intern on the ground what to do. Because I presume you don't have a palliative care yeah. intern now?
1: Well, I think this is really interesting. And I think, as you say, you know, the, the wards are changing rapidly. I think I've been quite lucky to work in a variety of different hospitals from the type of hospital where the Met call is king and nothing, you know, the intensive care registrar has to look after every patient in the hospital. Um, to hospitals where there is no formal MET system, and I'm not sure that that's a good thing. Um, I'm, I think the system at RPA, which is where I work at the moment, is quite a good system where up until a certain level, the MET calls, in inverted commas, are actually sent to the pager of the surgical or medical registrar on call. So so the um, an ICU staff member will often still attend, but the primary person responsible for the patient, up until they reach a degree of, of level of illness, is actually the, the specialty doctor because I think it's important you know we're going to if we keep up with the with the met system and its true intention in 10 years time we're going to have a generation of specialist physicians and surgeons who are not very skilled at looking after sick patients on the ward mm. and it will fall to icu and maybe that's good because it will give all of us all of us jobs one day perhaps but I think, I think there's a lot of people who wanted to be intensivists to be intensivists, not to be hospitalists, and maybe that's the solution, to go with the American way of introducing that system here.
0: See, um, it's something that I'm not personally afraid of. I mean, I'd, I'd happily go to Metcalfe over and over again. I'd happily be an intensivist with that sort of... Um Role, um, the it is a different role, but I just don't think I don't think it's something that I'd personally be afraid of. I can see why the people always like, that's not what I signed up for, that's not what I was interested in. It's interesting. We've got a Ronaldo Balomo was involved in this on a couple of different levels. I mean, of course, he was with uh, Michael Buist and Montero and Curley and uh, I think Steve Bernard down, and Dan mm-hmm. did the study on Met calls down there, and and uh, Balomo similarly with company up in Austin did it. And mm-hmm. uh, but he's also did you were you aware of this paper? I think he did it last year, the year before. Come one of the ASMs that I've been at, and uh, this sort of pre warning system that he developed for uh, basically looking at people's observations and um, uh, some simple pathology, and they would actually—he had this within the Austin—he developed this algorithm which would essentially predict the chances of the person having a met call or even having a code in the Austin Hospital with remarkable specificity and sensitivity.
1: Are you aware of that one? No, I haven't. That sounds very. Well, it is interesting
0: because if you have if you have a hospital sort of system, like, mm. just like you're describing, where mm. you might have different levels of calls of emergency calls, then you could have a situation where at the beginning of the day, this thing will just print out. Sort Going on, on the odds of the, the, the last 24 hours, we predict that in the next 24 mm. hours you've got a 70% chance of these people mm. requiring ICU involvement. So, yeah, get around and see them. But maybe we could have a situation whereby we could say, we, you know, level one, you know, the medical registrar or the surgical registrar have to see that patient mm. early on the ward round today and just all to the limit and just various different versions of this. Mm. I've worked in trauma centres where we have different levels of calls mm. and it makes a lot of sense. Now, we're going to get called back in shortly but i want to get a bit more time it's because you've been in parliament <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Have we've got to vote um the other uh, thing I want to talk with you about is you're very, I mean, you, obviously you've got a Scottish accent, a lovely Scottish accent, okay, and um, you're not made of plastic like the little Lego man, although, you know, you, you aren't very well kept, I have to, uh, I'll have to take a photograph if you show everybody, um, but uh, you did all your medical training out here in New Zealand, and even more interesting to some of us in, in the, in the sort of pre-hospital world that I work in at the moment, you're actually paramedic as well, weren't you?
1: Yeah, so despite my, my watered-down Scottish accent, I, I lived in, the, just on the outer suburbs of Glasgow until I was about 10, and then my family... It's like, it's Edinburgh? (laughs) I lived in a little seaside town called Irvine which was a nice seaside town when I lived there I'm not sure that it is anymore (laughs) Um, and then my family moved to Auckland New Zealand when I was 10 and I started all my schooling and went to medical school there um, and, and while I was at medical school, I was incredibly lucky to be involved with St. John Ambulance, who operate the emergency ambulance service here in New Zealand, as, as they do in a couple of states of Australia. Um, and uh, they paid me to be a paramedic on weekends and holidays while I was at med school, which, which as you can imagine, provided me with far more knowledge and experience than med school ever did. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> and then I started my anaesthetic training uh, over there, and, and um, or here now I suppose, we're in Wellington, and did a bit of ICU and, and fell in love with ICU just at the time that Sikkim was forming, um, and then decided to move to Australia to move to a bigger city, and um, I'm now doing full-time intensive care in a, in a big hospital in, in Australia. Have you done much emergency? I, I haven't, and I'm kind of sad that I haven't. I've done six months of emergency and that's all, and... I um, I, I would, to be honest, I'd like to do more. What I've found about emergency medicine, not having worked in it, this is just an outsider's perspective, is I think, you know, it would be foolish not to say that there seems to be a lot of, of not unhappy, but perhaps uncertain people in emergency medicine at the moment, but I, I have, I think I've been lucky. The departments that I've worked in, one of which was in a base hospital, Everyone was happy because they had good direction over what they were doing and, and they were in control of the department and it was a relatively busy department. And I think, you know, I, I would have if I'd stayed in that hospital, I may have ended up doing emergency mm. medicine. I think it just shows that, that perhaps the specialty you choose depends perhaps more on the people and the places that you're working than what interests you.
0: Uh, I think at, at best, emergency is possibly the best job in medicine, but mm. not everybody, I think, sits there thinking, like, I'm in one of the best departments, mm. I'm having the best time. Mm. All right, fantastic. Well, listen, um, thank you so much for talking to me, um, and I look forward to chatting again later on, now that I know what you actually look like. <laughs> and I must admit, you have been cracking me up with your comments on the, the Twitter, so I'll be, I'll be watching that now a lot over the, last, the next little while, and we have to go easy on our friend... Um, Luciano, who yes, is uh, indeed a very amusing. Individual, isn't he? I think though he has to get the word for he was
1: yesterday definitely he was definitely the most stylish character. Oh uh, look with, with the his, uh, with the black shirt and the uh, and the ivory sports coat, all he needed was a was a was a Panama hat and a cigar. Oh uh, uh, the a <laughs> um, uh, cigar, absolutely.
0: Okay, now we are not promoting cigars here on uh, the um, yeah, life of the fast lane, sorry about that. Okay, Churio, see you later bye. See you, bye-bye.